0: like the stuff that I would want to talk about wouldn't really be good at church you know but if you could ask about anything what would you ask um I don't know just like why does God seem so messed up in the Bible like killing all the time and Christians too seems like there's lots of crazy stuff Christians do you know like we definitely never talk about that or maybe, I don't know, other religions might actually be right, too. Or better than ours. Like, maybe there's lots of ways to get to God. I don't know. So, see, it's not really super great questions for church. Totally. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I just, I mean, I have some of the same questions, too, actually. They're good questions. If you're ever sitting there thinking, can I ask that? The answer is yes. You can ask that. So that's where we find ourselves this morning uh, in this series, this great series called Ask Me Anything that's really just all about getting to some of the big questions, the questions that maybe we we don't ask because, well, for a lot of reasons, sometimes we're not sure maybe if we can ask those questions or we know we can, but when do you ask those questions? Some of them are so big that realistically there's kind of the, you kind of wreck the party, you know, when, when you ask some of the big questions questions. And, uh, and so today, um, I have the responsibility and really the privilege um, of getting into it's probably one of life's biggest questions. Uh, especially, I mean, if you're a Christian, absolutely. But even if you're not a Christian, like this is, this is probably the big one that for so many people, um, it's either the barrier to faith or even when you do come to faith in Christ, you still kind of, you still maybe wrestle with it a little bit. And of course, that question is, how could God possibly be good when there's just so much evil and suffering in the world? And, and I just want to kind of say how seriously I take a question like this, and uh, I know we come to this question from all kinds of different places. There are some of us this morning that you would come to this question, and it's really, uh, it's, it's just kind of an intellectual exercise. You know, it's just kind of saying, yeah, like, that's a great question. I'd kind of like to know kind of how does, how does, how does that work, but... There's, there's many of us, though, that are here this morning, that when, that when you ask that question, it is not from an intellectual standpoint. Uh, you know, you may be here this morning um, looking for... A real answer, because of maybe something that you 've experienced, and so before we kind of get into just kind of talking about you know, what what is behind this and and how do we answer this, um, I just want to pause first and just say that you know if you 're asking this question not just from an intellectual standpoint, if you 're asking this question um, from a very personal place, um, I just want to let you know that you, you really have my sympathy i 'm so sorry because the truth is is that. If you're asking this question personally, it's probably because you know a little bit about that suffering. You know, perhaps you've watched a, a loved one die of cancer, or maybe you've lost a child. Uh, you might know very much firsthand what civil war looks like, or uh, perhaps you're just still trying to process um, the, the the very recent yet again a, a school shooting in 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 Parkland and. You might just be sitting there and just seeing these kinds of things go on and just be really, really wrestling with this. And, and so I just want to acknowledge that you, know, you, you may be coming to this question from a place of hurt or even from a place of anger, and, and I can relate to that. Uh, I felt that sting of anger and that burn of deep wrath that just won't go away. Every time you feel like you're just watching evil win. Uh, it's in every moment that a corrupt politician takes a bribe or, or you know, lies about where their money was and what's going on. It's, it's every time that I see a starving baby on the cover of a magazine like Time that just, you know, just because of a famine, and that's it, and that's what's going on, or It makes me angry because, I mean, I know full well um, how much grain our countries dump into the ocean when stock prices fall in order to create scarcity and demand and make more money. And those two things together, I mean, it just makes you angry. It's the anger and the pain of of sex trafficking statistics or a history class overview of religious wars for the last 500 years or a feature film about a grand-scale human atrocity just in the 20th century. You see... I really I get this question. This question is not just one of those things that we can you know put in the philosophy box. This is a question that for for many of us, for most of us, I would say, touches us in a very personal way. Uh, it certainly touched me. I mean, I know I've I've stood in a hospital room with you know my baby in my arms and just wondering you know is she going to be around tomorrow? Uh, I've been betrayed by people that I really should have been able to trust, and uh, I've lost people too soon. You know, in the light of that kind of suffering, that kind of injustice where it seems like evil is winning, I've really asked myself, you know, where is God? And perhaps you've asked that question too. You know, I suspect that even if you haven't asked that question, it just means that you haven't asked it out loud. Because, you know, for a great many of us, the reason we don't necessarily ask the question out loud, where is God in the middle of suffering, is because what are the real possible answers? Well, they're terrifying. And it doesn't take too long to think about it for, you know, we kind of say, well, okay, um, there, there's two options here. I, I, either God just doesn't care. I mean, that's option number one. He just doesn't care. Suffering's happening. And if he doesn't care, it means He's cruel. It means there's just something in, in him that's just not altogether good and that's not a really a good, I hope that's not the answer. And then so we say, well, what's the other option? Well, the other option is maybe God really does care. He's not cruel, he's not indifferent, he sees evil, he sees suffering and he wants to do something about it, but maybe he can't. And if he wishes he could do something about it, but he can't do anything about it, then we wind up in a whole different other kind of problem because then why are we even praying? Like, what are we even asking for? I mean, God wants to do something, but he can't. He's kind of powerless. And, and you know, I think we, we kind of get instinctively that if those are our only two options to the question of where is God when evil and suffering are winning the day, then I understand why we don't want to ask the question. But there comes a point when I believe we are forced to ask, The question. We can avoid it for a little while, but you know, when you're the parent whose teenager is gunned down in their school hallway, you can't avoid the question anymore. You know, when you're the person whose dad at at a young age, in his 40s, is all of a sudden just, just dead, and you're just like, why? That kind of suffering, you just be like, that doesn't make sense. He was healthy and See, when that happens, you can't really so much sidestep the question anymore. You can't avoid it. We've just we've experienced tragedies in our lives. We've all had at least some part of our story touched by something that just looks like pure evil. And and we so we wrestle with this because sometimes we just sit there and say, I, I don't know how to answer th- that question. So, like I said, if you're coming from that place this morning. Before I say anything else, I I would just want you to know that you really do have my my deepest sympathies because I I can't minimize the gravity of what you've experienced. I'm not even going to try to uh, because I know that the answer to your question isn't really going to be answered by a really well-spoken logical argument. Like I I could give you a bunch of ideas and a bunch of reasons and kind of how all this stuff works, but it doesn't really speak to the pain that you've experienced. And the truth of the matter is that the real answer to this question of where is God in the midst of suffering and evil is actually even more uncomfortable than the question itself. Because the answer is that he's actually right in the middle of it himself and that leads us to a much bigger question and a much bigger problem, which is how do we deal with a crucified God? How do we process a God that himself is is suffering What do we do with that? A God who chooses to experience betrayal and loneliness and torture and death? And so we kind of come to this place with a great deal of honesty to say, what are we to do with this suffering and the problem of evil and a God who somehow is now caught up in the middle of it? And I think in order to answer that question, we not just need to look to Scripture, but we actually need to maybe understand a little bit of the world that existed at the time when those scriptures are written and certainly when, when all of this is, is going on. See, historically, this has kind of always been a big question. And I don't just mean that in from a Christian standpoint or a biblical standpoint. I mean every culture, every people group, in fact, every religion and religious system and philosophy in the world really attempts to kind of answer the question of, what do you do with evil? What do you do with suffering? How do we, how do we deal with this? And, and in the world that the Bible was written in, um, there was some really specific things going on. Um, you know, Historically, in pagan cultures, the explanation for suffering was actually very, very simple. Um, evil was at equal odds with good. And when the good gods were kind of warned against the evil gods, well, you better pray that the good gods win. And when, because when evil reigns, bad things happen. And, you know, and, and if evil won the day, you had to go find a new God who could rescue you. And there's kind of this sort of corporate mentality. And so, you know, you may find that, you know, in, in the pagan world, in, in the Greek world, the Roman world, there may be a God of your city that, that's worshipped and there's sacrifices made to this God who gonna protect us. And, and if your city is kind of like, man, we got no food because we have famine, you know, you kind of say, well, our God is, God's probably mad at us. Or it's been defeated. And so you kind of would have, you know, these, these traveling roadshow religious salesmen you know, who might show up and say, well, I, I'll tell you why things aren't going so well. Because your God's been defeated by that evil God. But don't worry, we've got a new God right here. And for four easy payments of nineteen ninety five, this God can be yours. And uh, if you pray to this God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be Okay. And that was kind of the corporate sense. But then on an individual level in these pagan cultures, when an individual person would experience suffering. So, you know, it's not that the whole city is no food. It's that bad things are happening to you. Evil's touching your life. Tragedy has befallen your family. The belief was that, you know, because obviously something is out of sync with the God that you worship. And so they just believed in a very real way that the gods would punish their subjects if they were offended if you have done something that God didn't like, they're offended, they're offended now they're gonna, they're gonna punish you. Or if they're bored because you've just failed to kind of keep them engaged, they'll punish you. Or they're just like angry in general, they're having a bad time. You don't understand, in the, in the pagan world, Life was complicated. To simply, you know, leave your house and go get a bucket of water probably involved rituals and prayers to at least three different gods. There's the God of your household before you leave. you got to make sure you don't get mugged on the way out. There's the God of the field and the forest that you're going to travel through. And let's just pray that nothing bad happens. And then there's the God of the river and may he bless the water and hopefully you don't die from E. coli. Like, like this is like this is the pagan world, and you gotta appease all of these gods in order to get through it. You know, this is where these, these religious calendars came from. And you gotta understand that the pagan world was deeply religious. It's funny because when we use that word now and talk about people who are pagans, we, we kind of mean they're irreligious a lot of the time. But no, the pagan world was incredibly religious, and so these, these calendars and because you had to keep track. You, you had to. You'd be like, okay, well, you know, I got out of my car. I know on this day I have to make this sacrifice. i got to keep that God happy so that, so that my, my mule doesn't get sick or so that my, my wife doesn't, you know, stub her toe. Like, there's just, like, it's the whole realm. And there's just sort of this superstitious thing that's, that's going on. That's the Greek world. That's the Roman world. And, and, and what's, what's interesting is that at its core, our struggles with evil actually tend to reflect the reality of this sort of pagan paradox. And in fact, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to Christian pagans say things that, you know, suggesting that, you know, well, things that are pagan. That's what I mean. I mean, these are people who would profess their belief in Jesus, and, you know, they've got a Bible. But for whatever reason, they've actually adopted a pagan worldview from the third century B.C., instead of a biblical worldview. And so they they say things like, you know, when when a tragedy happens, say, well, well, you know, that's that's really God's judgment for sin. And we see this, don't we? I mean, in fact, every time a a hurricane rocks anywhere, there's there's some Christian on television saying, well, this is just God's judgment on this nation. And I just kind of look at that and say, well, that is a, that's a pagan point of view. Of course, you know, they, they've liked to back it up well, while, but you see in the Old Testament, God judged this way and this way and this way. And I'm like, yes, he did. But there was this person named Jesus who we believe in. We're in a little bit of a different place right now. This is the thing is, it's sometimes not just big picture, corporate, something that's personal. I've been around where people that I know, um, in fact, I believe it was on her third miscarriage and a Christian came up to her and said, well, I think you're having miscarriages because there must be secret sin in your life. And Not only is that insensitive and horrific, you're looking and say, how could you even, like, why would you say that? It's a pagan point of view. Perhaps the gods are angry with you. See, the Bible actually has a radically different perspective than that. Radically different now, off the charts, radically different in the ancient world at the time when, it's, when these things are being, being, being written. In fact... The Bible really flies in the face of pagan ideas about evil and their origins and what we're to do as as humans. And for starters, the Bible actually does not attempt to explain to us the origin of evil. In Genesis chapter 3, we're simply introduced to the serpent who was crafty and malicious, who subverts the first human's trust in God as if doing so was just an exercise in entertainment. What's interesting is that the Bible never seeks to tell us actually what the origins of evil are. Other faiths too, other religions will try to, you know, at length, they, you know, well, this is where evil came from. The Bible actually does not attempt to do that at all, and, um, and while for some reason um, that has not stopped Christians from speculating, uh, from Augustine to Arrhenius and beyond, uh, but I would actually argue, I think we get into dangerous territory when we actually try to go there, when we're trying to... You know, when you try to answer the question of where does evil come from, well, it's not a question that God actually chooses to enlighten us to. Because instead what he does is he focuses everything on something I think is far more important. The Bible speaks consistently, specifically, over and over and over again to God's response to evil. And in fact, that's really what you read in the Bible. A great deal of the biblical story is about how God responds to the problem of evil. And when we read that story and when we get to know this God and how he responds to evil and to suffering in the world, I think it's actually the greatest argument about why we would love and worship that God. God takes on evil deliberately and carefully, and, and, he, and he has to because, as you and I well know, the problem of evil in the world is not confined to some sort of external entity you know, called evil that we can just react to and destroy. And, and I think that comes as a shock to us in the Western world. Uh, to pull a page from N.T. Wright, you know, um, many of you would remember exactly where you were uh, on, on 9-11, And all of it, you know, just and how that changed the fabric of our world in so many ways. And yet, as soon as that those events, when the dust had settled, it wasn't just one country, it was all of the nations of the world collectively saying, Hold on, people are flying airplanes full of civilians into buildings and just killing these innocent people. This is pure evil. We need to find out who they are so we can drop some bombs on evil. See, that tends to be our approach in the Western world is that, well, if we could just find evil, we can just bomb it. We can just drop some bombs on evil and then evil will go away. Of course, it never actually becomes that simple. It's turned out that every time we've found where evil lives and bombed it, that there seems to be more evil that just comes to take its place. You know, even in the light of this this shooting uh, in Parkland, that you've been seeing so much on the news, like, are, we we kind of get okay. Well, if we can't drop bombs on it, well, what can we do next? Well, maybe we can legislate evil out of existence. We can just pass laws that we get rid of the evil. And and I, and I would be the first to say that I'm I, I'm I'm certainly not thinking that in a society that we shouldn't pass good laws. Of course we should. We should pass intelligent laws and and do everything we can. Uh, to ensure you know safety for, for our citizens and all of those things. But the reality is, is that there are so many people that are so desperately convinced that if we could just pass the right law, then we'll never see evil like this again. Uh, it's just a fallacy. It's just not true. I mean, you can pass a lot of laws, but it doesn't seem... You know, evil seems to keep lurking up, no matter how many bombs we drop or laws that we pass. And so in the Western world... Um, This comes to a shock. This comes as a shock to us. But we know that the problem lies much deeper than that. What I don't think we want to admit is that the same root of the evil that we condemn in acts of terror or in acts of injustice, that same root of evil lives and sometimes even thrives inside of each of us. And so we have this God who lives in this tension. He has this completely unyielding love for you as his creation and a total determination to destroy evil. And that is really the dilemma of God. And when we read the story of the creation of humans and we watch the first sin take place, it's like a slow motion car crash. And it's just horrifying and we cringe. But then we look and we see what's God gonna do. I mean, those that he loves have just joined and fused themselves to the very thing that God hates. All of a sudden, God's creation that he deeply cares about, is intertwined with sin and evil. And so you ask, well, what's going to win out? I mean, is he just going to decide to be like, well, you're tainted now, and he's just going to destroy us and be done with it? Does, or does he just kind of say, well, I, I love you too much. I'll just give up on the destruction of evil. I guess it's just going to be a corrupt world forever. Just make a mess of things. I mean, sometimes it, it feels that way. Sometimes it looks that way. When we read the Bible, when we read the story, we realize it's actually neither of those things. In fact, the in the true narrative of Scripture, the big picture is that it's it's about what God does to solve this problem of evil once and for all, while never compromising his love for us. And here's the spoiler alert God determines that he's gonna untangle the mess. He's determined that he's going to destroy the evil in us to unfuse evil with the objects of his love in order to bring about true justice. And this is no small plan. And as we'll look at this upcoming Easter weekend, it's a plan that finds its fulfillment in a God who is on a cross. A God who recasts humanity himself and in Jesus defeats evil, not just in the world, but in us. So that through Jesus, we can escape this, this intertwined mess. And so that's kind of where we begin. And I know you would look at it and say, well, that's really great. But, but what about now? Because it's been 2,000 years and a lot of evil has reigned in the meantime. Uh, if God has hatched the perfect plan in Jesus to destroy evil and somehow save us, then why are we still waiting? Why are we waiting for God to make things perfect? Why is the suffering still here? And now, when you ask that, now you've arrived at the question of the New Testament. Because exactly what the early church was asking. In fact, much of the New Testament is really speaking to the confusion on that issue, where they're saying, "Okay, well, hold on. We get what Jesus did. Jesus defeated evil. Like it's like he has conquered evil. We know he's conquered evil. So why are we? Why is there still evil? Why are those slaves still being abused? And and why are why are my Christian brothers and sisters being fed to lions by the Romans? Like why is this still happening? That's the tension of the New Testament, but. I think we can identify with that. It's still the tension we live in today. And and in fact, Jesus speaks to this. Because even before Jesus goes to the cross, he he shares this parable. From the book of Matthew, it says this. It says, Jesus then told them this story. The kingdom of heaven is like what happened when a farmer scattered good seed in a field. But while everyone was sleeping, an enemy came and scattered weed seeds in the field and then left. Now I need to stop there because just let's talk culture for a second. Um, In the light of certain legislation that's about to come into effect in this country... I just want to be clarify what was not being planted in that field. This isn't a story about cannabis. This isn't about the weed fields. And, you know, this isn't an episode of Narcos or anything weird like that. This is, you know, literally just me. You've got somebody who's in there looking at, with hatred at his neighbor and just kind of saying, huh, he's going to do really well this year. I hate that guy. And they're just blowing the dandelions. Like, they're just being like, ha-ha, sucka. Just to clarify that, you know, when they're scattering weed seeds, this wasn't a grow up, okay, because that could really, sorry, it's my, my youth ministry background, I just thought I should clarify that because you, you'd be like, yeah, that time when Jesus, like, you know, Jesus in the grow up, you know the story. <laughs> Matthew chapter 13, Jesus in the grow up. Not what you think it means. Okay, anyways, but, so here's what happens. So then when the plants came up and they began to ripen, the farmer's servants could see the weeds, and then the servant came and asked, but sir, didn't you st- scatter good seed in your field? where did all those weeds come from? And he says, an enemy did this, he replied. I love that line. I feel like I say that line sometimes. What, how would it happen here? An enemy did this, you know? Sometimes, you know. My wife and I clean the kitchen and you come back in later, and I'm just looking around. She says, What happened in here? Well, <laughs> an enemy did this. <laughs> Tell you. You know, but then his his servants then asked, do you want us to go out and pull up all the weeds? And he says, no, 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 no. You might also pull up the wheat. Leave the weeds alone until harvest time and then I'll tell my workers to gather the weeds and tie them up and burn them, but I'll have them store my wheat in the barn. See, what we see in God is a tremendous amount of patience that's rooted in deep compassion. Because what's going on in the stories, you have this situation where, you know, while the plants are growing, the, the wheat... And the weeds look, I mean, they're looking a lot similar. And and the master here is what he's saying. He says, No, you don't understand. Like, in pulling up all the weeds now, you might accidentally pull up some of the wheat. And I just, I can't, I'm not willing for that to happen. So you're gonna have to wait till the day of harvest, wait for the day when, when everything sprouts and we can clearly see ah, oh, that was wheat. That was dandelion. And then you can pull it. Like, then we'll separate it. We'll harvest everything and we'll sort it. You realize it's, you know, where our deepest fear is that God's character is somehow not good, that it's corrupt. And yet here you've got this story where what Jesus is saying is he's saying, no, like God's the kind of God who says, I'd rather deal with weeds and wheat growing side by side and have to sort them later, then risk it that, you know, somebody good, somebody who would choose me, someone who is actually healthy, I, I couldn't risk them being destroyed. And that's what's kind of going on here. It's an interesting parable because it doesn't leave any doubt. There will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment that will be swift and severe. Evil will pay. Evil will be defeated. But God delays this day because of his compassion. Because if it were to come too soon, some who would be saved, some people who would have chosen him, might get caught up in the judgment. And he's not willing to let that happen. And I know we don't like to talk about the final judgment in church. We're afraid to go there. Because the idea that there's these people who it sounds like are getting tied up and thrown into the fire, I mean, that just seems awful. It paints a picture of a God that we don't like. He looks violent and vindictive. And of course, that question of hell is such a big one. And Pastor Darcy's going to preach about that next week. So God bless him. Um, but you know, that's actually not the picture that the Bible paints for us. It's, it's, in Jesus, God defeats the monsters in us so that we can be saved if we choose. The judgment at the end of the age was actually never designed for you and I. It was just designed for evil. And so he longs for all to choose life, to escape the fire. And he will be patient. I mean, allowing the seeds of evil to grow in order to make sure that not one person who would choose him would actually perish in judgment. And so the place that we live now is in this tension. We live in a place now that theologians would call it inaugurated eschatology. It's a really big word. In fact, I would just say that if you know, if you ever feel like you're not getting seen quickly enough at the hospital, you can just, you know, just tell them, be like, you know, what's the problem? Well, I think I have inaugurated eschatology. I mean, if you say that, I'm sure the doctors will be with you right away because it sounds terrible, um, and you'll probably, you know, you'll get you'll get seen a little faster. You can use that if you need to. But the, the what it, what it means is it means that we we have this this theology we we believe in the now but not yet. We believe that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus, but it's coming. It's kind of a strange paradox. It's a tension, and all of creation is groaning for redemption, for the day that Jesus comes in fulfillment. And and maybe the best way to explain it would be to look at the analogy of a a good father who adopts a group of orphans who've been severely uh, just uh, abused and mistreated. And I mean, I want you to picture this that, you know, there's this is a dozen boys or so, and, and they've just come from a terrible, terrible situation, and it's just been, been awful, and, and they've come to live with the good father, with, with, it, with, with all the baggage, and all the trauma, and all the pain, and all the bad habits to go with everything that they had experienced up until that point. And so as would be expected, I mean, they're pretty brutal to each other. They're picking on each other and fighting with each other. But the father just, he's showering them with love. And as he, as he just loves them so carefully and so deliberately, one of the boys actually begins to change. And he opens up to the love of the father. And all of a sudden, he's just, he's a different kid. He's, he's hope-filled, and, and he really, in, in every way, becomes a true son. It's like he, all of a sudden he's changed, and seeing this change, two other boys, they kind of look at this and be like, okay, what's up? And they, they kind of let their guard down a little bit. They begin asking questions to the father, and then they finally let go of their pain and their anger and their distrust, and they become true sons too, and they change. And as, as time goes on, there's a, a tension that then begins to build, though, between the sons that have come to trust the father and the sons that have not. And even though the father loves them both equally. And time after time when one of the sons who has trusted the father comes, it comes to the father with a, with a fat lip or a bloody nose, a black eye, a bump in the head. I mean, bullied by one of the sons who doesn't trust the father. This story would be like the father saying, Listen, son, I need you to remember how you were when I found you. I know it's hard and I know it doesn't seem right, but I just, I need you to take it on the chin and forgive him, please, if you could just do it, because I just believe that there's still hope for him. And this goes, and as this goes on, and this this grace is just, pervading in this this home, you begin to see that even a few more of these boys finally begin to trust the father, seeing that they they didn't even get kicked out in, in their misbehavior. And so they let go of their hate and they change, but make no mistake about how, see, there still comes a point though. The father would be patient, but there does come a point After years and years and years, but the father eventually just says, Listen, enough is enough. And he says to the sons who continue to throw punches and who do not trust, says, Enough is enough. I cannot allow you to abuse these boys any longer. Justice must prevail. And to those other children, unrepentant and abusive they end up getting sent packing. And that's what the story of judgment is actually really about. It's about God's final enforcement of evil's defeat. When God says, you know, I have been patient. There is, you could be untangled. The evil in you, which I must destroy, it can just, we can pull it apart. But if you will not, if you will not, you will die when I judge evil. There's no way around it. Because God says, I, I will not let my kids suffer forever. I will vindicate them. I will protect them. And it's in that place that now we find ourselves longing for because of our sufferings, but yet it's not here yet. And that still leaves us to deal with suffering. You know, understanding what Scripture says about this doesn't, I mean, it's helpful, but it doesn't diminish our pain. And that's what Paul thankfully, takes on in Romans chapter 8. Because having the right answers is one thing. But we all know that when we're experiencing the effects of evil and suffering in our very real lives, it's not just about right answers. So this is what Paul says in in Romans chapter 8. He speaks of suffering and he says, I'm sure That what we are suffering now cannot compare with the glory that will be shown to us. In fact, all of creation is eagerly waiting for God to show who his children are. Meanwhile, creation is confused, but not because it wants to be confused. God made it this way in the hope that creation would be set free from decay and would share in the glorious freedom of us, his children. Because we know that all creation is still groaning and is in pain like a woman about to give birth. But the Spirit makes us sure about what will be the future. We may groan silently now, but while we wait for God to show that we are his true children. But we know that God is always at work for the good of everyone who loves him. They are the ones that he will be faithful to. He has chosen them for his purpose. And he has always known them. And he's actually decided that they should become like his own son so that his son Jesus would be the first of many children. God has called them by name and stayed with them to the end. So what could we say about all this? I mean, if God is on our side, can anyone be against us? I mean, God didn't even keep his own son back from suffering, but he gave him up for us. And if God did this well, won't he freely give us everything else? If God says his chosen ones are loved by him, can anyone bring a charge against them? Can anyone condemn them? No, indeed. Christ died and was raised to life, and now he is at God's right side speaking to him for us. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble, can suffering, can hard times or hunger or nakedness or danger or death No, because it's as scriptures say, and in everything, we have won more than a victory because of Christ who loves us. And I'm sure that nothing can separate us from God's love, not life nor death, not angels or spirits, not the present or the future, and not powers above or powers below. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul, he's not pulling any punches here. He's not denying the suffering, but he's saying, this is how it works. He's deliberately contradicting those pagan beliefs, the ones that say, well, if you're suffering, it's because God has abandoned you. He comes against that and says, that is not what's going on. Yes, God will defeat evil. But in the meantime, when you suffer, when things are happening that ought not to be happening, it is not a sign that God has left you. It is not that the gods are angry. That's paganism, not Christianity. See, our sufferings are not indicators that God has left us. So there's no fatalism here, because otherwise you just look at it and you just kind of be like, well, I guess bad things are just gonna happen. No point in praying. That's not what Paul's saying at all. And there are times, and I have certainly experienced this in my life, as I'm sure you have in yours, where you've seen how God's hand specifically on your life at at a certain season or a certain time has saved you from immense suffering. And yet there are other times when you've wondered why the suffering hasn't gone away. And what Paul is saying is that we pray for God's intervention, we we believe for great things, but that we don't take the sign of whether God does or God doesn't as some sort of deeply mystical statement about whether or not he loves us. Cuz that's paganism. It's not Christianity. See, we struggle to maintain a theology of suffering. We want to believe that if we choose God, that the only reason bad things will happen is if we're out of God's will. And, and I mean, I, I have this thing, that I, I, I just need to like repent. I just sometimes have, I sometimes have this, like, this little voice in the back of my head that just has a really sassy tone to it. Like, I don't, I don't know where that comes from at all. Like, I don't. Like, it just sometimes I'm just out of my own business and I'd be like, Kind of got a little sassy voice there. And and a few years ago, um, I was, um, there, there was a very well-known pastor from a very large church in the U.S. I'm not going to say who it is, but um he tweeted something on, on Twitter. I mean, that was back when, you know, people still used Twitter and everything. Um, I think now it's just like Donald Trump uses Twitter. Like, that's really it. Like, I don't think anyone else does. Um But but back, this was years ago, and people, a lot of people used Twitter. And, um, and so he had tweeted this thing, and he tweeted, he says, I want you to know that the safest place for you to be is in the center of God's will. We pray in faith, and suffering is no place in the life of a believer. He, was a, he had like like a million followers on Twitter. And I just had this like, you know, like that little sassy. I I mean, Jesus needs to deliver me because I have this this, a problem. It's like the sassy voice, and you know. And so I just started typing. I was like, "Wow, someone really should have told the apostle Paul that." I I sent it. I mean, I and then I just tweeted it. It was like it was out there. And then I started writing again, and I was like, boy, someone really should have told the prophet Jeremiah that. When he was in that cistern, they should have been like, Jeremiah, come on, man. Like, if you were only in the center of God's will, you wouldn't be in a cistern right now. Good thing you're here. Tell us. Seriously, it's terrible. Like, like I'm not a good person. You should probably pray for my soul because I just this sassiness. And I just, and so I've tweeted about 10 or 11 other more examples. I basically just kind of went through the Bible, and every time, like, oh, and then there was Joseph. And then they were like, we're just going through. Like, here's all, here's why you're wrong. But it's because that theology is so dangerous. All these people who are reverting to paganism because some like celebrity pastor just told them that suffering doesn't have the place in the life of a believer, that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. I mean, if that's the case, like Paul, did you read Paul's letters? So I was doing what God told me to do and preaching the gospel. And then I got stoned to death and they beat me with all the lashes the same way as Jesus. And then they shipwrecked me. And like he's like telling all these stories. And I'm like, apparently... The center of God's will is terrible, which is maybe why the church is completely ineffective in some parts of the world. But anyways, that's a whole other message. But the thing is, is that we have this idea that if suffering would be the thing that tells us whether God likes us or not, that's paganism. Instead, what we get, this is what we get out of Romans. Instead, what we get is is Paul saying, he's like, no, no, you don't understand. It's not that the suffering is never gonna come. It's not that evil's not gonna look like it's winning, but when you're in suffering and when you're in evil, you've got this peace. You've got this confidence that the depths of your soul that you know that God would never abandon you. You know that Jesus is greater than your circumstances, and it doesn't matter if you give your life for him in a prison like Paul did. You're still gonna say, but God is good, because I know he loves me. It's bigger than your suffering, and that's what Paul's getting at. There's more going on here. That's what God gives us. Sufferings are to be expected, but unlike the pagans, we, we don't take them as tea leaves to read what God might be thinking. So the day of redemption will come. We know it's going to come. But in the meantime, as the great Irish statesman Edwin Burke said, he said it so well and so famously, but in the meantime, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men would do nothing. Because here's the thing. This is what it really comes down to. Because we have been rescued by God, because we have this sure confidence in what Jesus does, because we understand its significance, We now have an ambassadorial role to play. We are ambassadors of the kingdom. And so the question isn't, well, what can I do to hurry up God's kingdom to come because I don't like how this is going? That's not the question. The question is, since you're a citizen of the kingdom that puts the end to evil and alleviates suffering, how should you be living? And that's what every Christian has a responsibility for, to subvert evil, to be an agent of justice. So don't get caught up in the politics of this. Where there's evil and suffering and oppression, it ought to be Christians who stand up for the values of the kingdom that is going to come. We ought to be more outraged than any that grain is dumped into the oceans to keep prices high, even in the midst of a famine. We ought to be absolutely outraged that political games between Russia and the United States the issues that they can't just sort of solve between two nations, they got to deal with shadow stuff in Syria resulted in the deaths of potentially up to 4,000 children last week. That should absolutely make your blood boil. When big banks exploit the poor or racism and genocide and slavery have a place in this world, those evils and those sufferings See, that should bother you. The, thing, the biggest thing that happened that should never have happened in the last hundred years in the Christian church was that a bunch of Christians became escapists. They just started saying, Well, you know, suffering is this big problem, like evil's really bad. We just gotta hold on tight and wait for Jesus to come and deal with it. And evil prevailed. I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would not look kindly to you. I mean, he said, in the face of evil, it is evil to do nothing. That silence is a statement. And that God would not let his church off without judgment for sitting by while evil happens. I mean, he's German, so he's pretty harsh. I mean, you can take that how you will. That's Bonhoeffer for you, but... But that's the thing, is that you must do something. Something. Sitting by is not an option. That escapism, you know, and, you know, to that, you know, Ray Aldred would, would say it this way. He said it so well, actually. So it's funny, Christians sit around saying, well, there's, we just can't do anything about the big problems of the world. Like, and we can't do anything about sex trafficking. And we can't, we can't do anything about racism. We can't do anything about famines. I mean, there's just so many mouths to feed, and we can't do anything about these kinds of injustice. And and Ray Aldred spoke to that, and he says, well, I don't know why Christians think that. I mean, Jesus took on the sin problem, and that was pretty big. And then he said, like, you can do even greater things. So why wouldn't he expect that the citizens of the kingdom that stands opposed to evil and suffering, the destruction of evil why wouldn't he expect that you would take on those big things? Which is why you have to do something. You must intervene. And so in figuring out how to do that, here's, here's what I would, let, let me bring it to this. There's really two, two parts to this. It's number one, so we need to bring the way we walk alongside the suffering into alignment with Scripture. We are to suffer with those who suffer and bear one another's burdens. There has to be an end to pagan theology in our church. I mean, Scripture is very clear. It's like, you're suffering. Like, there's no room for you to say to a fellow believer around here, be like, yeah, that bad thing that happened, probably God's judgment. Congratulations, you fit in really well in 3rd century Greece, like 3rd century BC Greece. Good for you. That's paganism. Uh, We don't practice that here. Instead, what we say is what scriptures tell us to do is they say, mourn with those who mourn, suffer with those who suffer, keep love with, love each other so well you, you bear another's burden for them. Because the thing is, is that sometimes we get really excited about dealing with the big problems on the other side of the planet, but the thing is, it's very hypocritical because we don't actually bear with the suffering of our neighbors. And so we, we have to stop with the pat answers The platitudes, the admonishment, well, there just must be hidden sin in your life. It is not the will of God that we suffer pain or oppression at the hand of evil. God hates those things. But he does ask us to be patient, to persevere in suffering, knowing that many will be saved by this patience and that our current suffering, he says, is nothing in comparison with the future glory that's coming. And when you are the one who is suffering, so means you need somebody who whispers that hope into your heart when you feel like your strength is failing, not someone who starts spouting pagan ideas to you. And then the second thing we have to do, and we just kind of talked about it, is, is that we need to live out the reality of God's kingdom, even if we're suffering. In fact, especially if we're suffering, because our actions now ought to alleviate suffering in the world as Christ's ambassadors. We're citizens of a kingdom whose anthem is proclaim freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, bind up the brokenhearted. That's the the anthem of the kingdom we belong to. So we ought to be living out that reality right now. The question is, do our lives bring justice and alleviate the sufferings of those around us? Do we carry the burdens of others? Do we live by the values of God's kingdom? Or do we simply just live by the values of this world? If there's anything that I just would hope that that you would take away from something like this this morning, it's that I hope that you'll remember that your sufferings are never a sign that God does not love you or care for you. And the sufferings in this world are not a sign that God has abandoned this world. Justice will come, but it's delayed so that every person who is still entangled with evil, if God in his wisdom knows, if I just give that guy another year, another decade, I know he'll choose me. God's that patient, he's that gracious, and he asks us to be the same but he doesn't just abandon us in that process either. I just, I really believe that God will meet you in the midst of your suffering to comfort you, that you would know the grace of Jesus, that you would know peace in the midst of unspeakable pain. We, We have to do this well. The last thing I'll say was just that you know we I understand I hear a lot of commentary right now about there's a deep fear about the direction our culture's going and it's, oh it's so godless and it's this and it's horrible and all these things and these changes and all that sort of thing and I think sometimes that does breed escapism I see Christians just you know they disengage themselves from the world and they just stand in the bleachers pointing fingers and yelling a lot of things. I had the opportunity to listen to David Kinnaman speak about this at one point, And he talked about it. He says, you know, if you want to see what a culture that divorces itself from God looks like, like you can. You can just go to Eastern Europe. Go to a former Soviet country. They lived with it for 70 years. But he shared this story. I'll never forget it. He shared the story of being in a stadium in this former Soviet bloc country is filled with young people, filled with young people, filled with young adults. And they all showed up because they heard that somebody was gonna be talking about Jesus. And the reason that he says because, you know, if you, he goes, you can divorce God from your culture, but it's gonna get really, really dark and really depressing and really nasty and life will be without meaning. And there comes a point where now all of a sudden you're desperate. And the question we have to ask ourselves is as Christians, will we ride the train with culture to the brink of despair so that when it finally comes to its senses, there will be somebody left in that culture who wasn't just trying to get out of it, who is actually able to proclaim hope to those who are desperate. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Jocka Lal said that our, our job as Christians, is to participate in the sufferings of Christ, and the reason it's suffering is that we stand at the intersection between God's will to life and the world's will to death, and it should feel like we're being torn apart by those tensions every day of our lives, and if it doesn't, we're not doing our jobs, and God calls us to those places, to suffer with those who are suffering, but to be confident in God's perfect will to life for all creation. Let's let's stand together. I'd like to pray for you. Father, we we ask that our hearts and our minds be thoroughly transformed by your word. Because God, we don't come to a subject of this weight and this gravity uh, without understanding just how significant it is. Lord, we pray that you would help us to weed out any roots of ideas and thoughts that they don't come from you. God, help us to be compassionate, Lord. I pray that you would give us wisdom to see how we can participate in your redemption of our world. But Lord, I just pray for those who are here that are hurting this morning. Because their lives have been touched by suffering and evil in a way that words do not do justice to. And so, Father, we pray that in the name of Jesus, the peace and the presence of your Holy Spirit would rest upon their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As, we, as we prepare to dismiss this morning, our prayer team is gonna be available at the end, and if there's anything that we can pray with you for, we would, we would love to do that. We'd love to just bless you and pray for you. But as you go and you go to enjoy your day and go about the things that God calls you to, I'd love to just give you a blessing if that's okay. It's just part of my tradition. In ancient times, when a person wanted to give another person a blessing, they would raise their hands like this, and then those who wanted to receive the blessing would do the same. And I would invite you, if you'd like to receive a blessing from God, to raise your hands. May your heart have endless confidence in the goodness of God's character. May you be able to bear with the suffering of those around you, and may God's love transform your world and the whole world. Amen. Be blessed.